0: Hello and welcome back to Control or Delete. My guest today is Ian Leslie, a writer and author of multiple best selling books on human behaviour. He writes about psychology, culture, technology, and business for The New Statesman, The Economist, The Guardian, and The Financial Times. He also co hosted the podcast series Polarised on the way we do politics today. He is such a fascinating guest to have on the podcast today. Really excited that I got to talk to him about his new book called Conflicted Why Arguments Are Tearing Us Apart and How They Can Bring Us Together. Conflicted draws essential lessons on how to disagree better from world-class experts like interrogators, hostage negotiators, divorce mediators, and many others. It's so interesting and so inspiring hearing stories of how productive disagreements have led to great things, from the invention of the aeroplane to the success of the Rolling Stones. He has combined such fascinating insights with the science of human communication And in a world where we are really polarised and we are very scared of having any disagreements with each other, I found this book really necessary and I really recommend it. I found it genuinely helpful in reflecting on how I can disagree better in work and at home and how we shouldn't shy away from uncomfortable conversations with each other. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation. If you enjoyed it, please do go and leave a little review on iTunes if you can or wherever you get your podcasts. It's very appreciated. Here is the conversation with Ian. So I'm really excited today to have Ian Leslie on the podcast. I've been wanting to do an episode on how to have better conversations or how to disagree better and the power of conflict for so long. And when your book arrived, I just it was such a great read. I learned so much more about the topic and yeah, we all need to talk more. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. That is very nice to hear. Yeah, nice to be here. So I actually wanted to start off with something that you mentioned in the acknowledgements of your book. I'm just very nosy. You wrote the book in Paris. Is that right? What led you there and what was it like writing it?
1: I, I wrote some of the book in Paris. I, I was there for um a couple of months, I think, in the sort of last stage of, of writing of the book. I was a writer in residence at a, a, a wonderful place, institution called the American Library in Paris, which is what it says on the tin. Um, uh, it's uh, an English language library run and, and funded by by American philanthropists. It's been there for, I think ever since, uh, shortly after the Second World War. Um, And one of the nice things they do is they have a writer who's working on a project to come and, uh, you know, you just kind of have a slot in the library and they kind of help you out with accommodation and uh and you just have to, you know, be part of the life of the library and do it a couple of talks and um and there's a lovely community around the, the the place. Um so it was very, very nice. I had to persuade my wife and uh <clears throat> my two young children that this was an essential part of the writer's task um to go and <laughs> essentially be uh, uh, you know a, a flaneur in in Paris for a couple of months but um, I have a very understanding family.
0: I just wanted to ask you that as well to live vicariously through you for a second because I think being in lockdown as a writer it's not been I mean for some people it's pr- probably been great but for me I love getting out and about while I'm writing so it's nice to hear that you did that
1: and there's no better place to be out about than than in paris it's the greatest kind of walking around and wandering around and being stimulated you know place in, in in the world really so yeah i was i was very very thankful and very lucky that it happened before the pandemic
0: totally so your book conflicted how productive disagreements lead to better outcomes is Is such a great book of of our time now, especially with social media and Twitter and things. But this book is kind of more broad than that, isn't it? It's not just about social media. Do you think that is a bit of a myth that we suddenly can't talk and have arguments because of online culture? Or do you think it has added to our inability, basically, to disagree?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I I think it's... um... It's not, uh, it's definitely made it harder and it's definitely raised n- new problems, um, but it's only part of a kind of wider issue we have, which is actually kind of has much deeper historical roots. Something I talk about, as you know, in the, in the kind of opening chapter, chapter of the book, where I talk about the fact that we're now living in cultures where everybody has a right to speak. Some get heard more than others, still, of course, but we, we are generally much more uh, open to different points of view and to people having the right to be heard uh, than we were, you know, 100 years or even 50 years ago, let alone 300 years ago. So, this is a kind of long term historical trend of more and more voices who are expected to be part of the conversation, right? So, and that means that there's a lot more places where we disagree. Because, you know, what happens when people speak their mind is you find out that they don't think what you think. And they often say things you find disagreeable. And then you want to talk back. What social media and the internet done has accelerated and uh, in some places kind of weaponized that that move towards more open debate and 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 disagreement. And we're now in this world where everybody can disagree with anybody at the speed of light, you know, <laughs> and anybody can kind of at the the moment they have the impulse to disagree, they, they, they can do so. And everybody can hear what they're saying. And we're just not remotely prepared for it. You know, nothing in our evolution has prepared for it. Nothing in our, uh, you know, historical cultural development as, as a species for most of our, Existence, you know, we, we've lived in settled tribes and settlements where, where there was a clear hierarchy. You know, most of your decisions or a lot of your decisions, a lot of your beliefs were already settled for you the moment you were born, right? You didn't have to think that, that hard about a lot of stuff. You just got on with it. Um, and we're now in this world where everything's up for grabs. The, the, the number of issues on which, in inverted commas, we all agree is shrinking mm-hmm. fast um And and we're faced with this kind of incredible disagreement machine uh, of of the internet and social media. I think it's completely caught us unaware, and nobody's come along and said, you know what? It's really actually hard to disagree well, uh, and and to disagree in a way in which you and both parties or all parties come away thinking, well, that was actually really useful and interesting. I'm glad we had that disagreement. So we do it really badly. Yeah, because <laughs> nobody trains you for it. Nobody cut. You know, nobody says here's how to do it. And so we either get stuck into horrible, pointless annoying and upsetting rouse or actually the bigger problem is because we've seen that happen or we've experienced it we avoid it altogether and when we avoid it we just miss out on so much uh, uh, as well I'm sure we'll talk about.
0: Yeah and what's so great about the book is at the end and also all all the way through obviously there are sort of practical bits of how to actually do this, how to disagree better. And I found that so, so useful. But I, I was thinking the other day that um the fact that with online culture, we've kind of produced this cult- this sort of culture of branding each other constantly, like the personal brand and labeling people all the time. And you're this politically minded and you're this person and I feel like people can jump from "Oh, I disagree with you slightly" to "You're a terrible person, and I hate you," and that's what I find really weird about now is if I say I don't like dogs, for example, because I don't actually love dogs, and someone could say, "I I do not like you," then
1: that doesn't. Well, you're a- yeah, you're a dog hater. <laughs> yeah, I'm an anti dog. Yeah, you're anti-dog <laughs> and I'm pro-dog. So, you know, we, we I don't like you. You know, I, this is, I'm not, that's not true, by the way. <laughs> I, by the way, up, I
0: do like welcome dogs into my home. I just don't want one. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It, one cannot want a dog in one's home and still, <laughs> but but yeah, you're right. The, our conversation immediately moves into these kind of, <clears throat> you know, these polarized groups. And that happens particularly on Twitter because it, on, on on Twitter or, or on other social media um, the the kind of mediating effect of being in someone's presence, even a virtual presence is better than than, than no presence, um, means that the, your conversation becomes focused on this tiny little thing, which is the disagreement itself. And the disagreement tends to go badly if it becomes only about the disagreement. Disagreements go much better when we have a rich sense of the other person because we know that there's more at stake here than just this thing that we're disagreeing about well you know we have a kind of intuitive sense that although we're talking about this thing we disagree on it we could still get on in all sorts of other ways we probably share lots of interests and and lots of uh, beliefs and, and and affections and and so on um when you take all that stuff away when you strip out all the context of a of a relationship of, of a conversation and and the disagreement becomes about this 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 little issue that you're talking about, and suddenly, you know, you kind of impose all your fantasies of that person. They they become sucked into that that des- disagreement, and so you think, oh well, Emma is a, a clearly a bad person. You know, she's she doesn't like dogs. She hates dogs. Um, she's um, probably got all sorts of other beliefs that I disagree with. Um, <laughs> and and either you get into a row or you just walk away from the conversation. So yeah, it's it's. Social media is not a good place to have productive disagreements. I, I mean, I, I I do talk about some ways you can do it better, but generally I would say, you know, try and have your disagreements somewhere else.
0: And I, I now am definitely that person that says, uh, I'm not going to do this on Twitter, but we could talk about it elsewhere because the character yeah. limit just is not going to work. But I love that bit in the book where you talk about a low context world because... For me, I see this more and more, even just around my own dinner table, when I go home for Christmas, for example, you've got all these people sat around the table. We do have a lot of context with, with each other, but hmm. we're all reading different things. And my dad's reading a different yeah. newspaper to me and disagreements happen. And I know that the context um, bit is is slightly different to the fact that we're all reading different things, but what we lose context with each other.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you don't have the shared background context of the fact that we all watched BBC News, you know, or or whatever it is, or we all read a couple of the same newspapers um therefore we're starting with the same kind of agreed set of uh, of information and a kind of range of views that's kind of been set by that um now as you say people can come to that table even when they know each other really well with just a really huge variety of different kinds of information and different kinds of ideologies and beliefs and they they come to that table and, and they sit down and then they're expected to just kind of Have a have a great conversation about it. It's actually hard. It's even harder sometimes for people you love. Exactly, exactly. So so when I, you know, getting the relationship right in a disagreement is the first thing you have to do. And that's not just the question of, you know, do I know this person or do I love this person? You can you can know and love a person, be close to somebody somebody, and still get the conversation off on the wrong foot from a relationship point of view. In fact, you know, as you know, happens more often than not, right? You have really bad disagreements with with your partner, with with your members of your family. And the same principle applies actually right across the board. So whether it's at work or in the public realm, you know, on social media, the the first thing for for a disagreement to to be productive is you have to kind of put the, the relationship level on a kind of, uh, um, on a level uh, footing it has to be kind of settled in some way before you get into into the disagreement.
0: So interesting. And w- when I was reading your book, I did think, because I've done a lot of episodes on this podcast recently about people pleasing and people trying to get out of the tendencies of just sort of agreeing with people all the time and having an easy life and kind of then having a lot of resentment actually inside. And uh-huh. to me, you're you know, the bit about relationships and how open conflict actually makes your relationships stronger. To me, it seems like the opposite of people pleasing in a good way.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when I started writing this book, I thought it was going to be roughly a book about kind of how we, we can kind of avoid conflict or kind of take conflict out of our lives and just talk through our differences in this really kind of calm, um, you know, platonic manner. Um, and the more I looked at it, the more I th- and the more I researched, the more I thought, actually, the, the bigger problem is not the toxic disagreements. I mean, that is a problem, obviously, that we see on social media, et cetera, et cetera. The bigger problem is, is avoiding disagreement because we find it so stressful and and that feeling of stress and 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 oh bad things are going to happen if i disagree is increased by seeing it because toxic disagreements are so visible now we see them all all the time and that enhances our sense that oh god this is a i don't want to get into this you know this is just not going to go well um and and yeah so so because of we we fear what's going to do to the relationship and we want to we want to please people we, we avoid it whenever we can. And when we avoid it, as you say, the disagreement doesn't go well. It just goes underground and becomes resentment <laughs> and becomes passive aggression, right? Um, yeah. And, and, and in, in, in the work context, it becomes office politics, right? Office politics is basically passive aggression at, at, at scale. Um, and that is corrosive to relationships, right? Much more corrosive than having the odd route now and again, right that's the thing that so avoiding disagreement is really a thing that's going to kind of drive people apart. when I talk to to relationship scientists, yeah they, they were they were really interesting because they said in our field for a long time we assumed that the couples who are happiest are the ones who never or, or rarely get into heated arguments. Um, and when they do have differences, they just talk them through very calmly because, you know, it's certainly true that that couples who split up often do have a lot of heated rows, right? So therefore, we thought, oh well, heated rows arguments are really bad. So, and now they're kind of changing their mind about that collectively. I think as a as a as a discipline, and because when they actually test this right so they actually get couples into laboratories they, they get them to talk about contentious issue, issues in the relationship and actually before you know it the couples forget that there's a camera trained on them and they just get you know they have they get into an argument or or you know or, or not or they just sit there um, and um, the, the the couples who are more ready to get into arguments who actually have a kind of lower threshold for Oi, yeah, I'm really <laughs> upset about this, um, are the ones who are more likely to stay together and because then they track the, the progress of these couples over the months and years uh, to come. And, and the, the couples who do that are more likely to stay together, more likely to be happier, more likely to solve their problems than the ones who are very calm and, and don't get into an argument at all. And one of, the, one of the psychologists who studies this said to me, look, conflict is information when you're in an argument you are finding out often in no uncertain terms <laughs> what your partner really thinks and really feels in a way that you're actually not you can't actually get often from a calm conversation you know you, you either you avoid the conversation because you, you know it's going to get you get get into a row in which case you're not getting information about what they think and feel or you have a kind of very careful you know hedged calm in inverted commas conversation and again you're not really getting the information about so uh, arouse enables you to see into their heart and and that is the way the secret (laughs) to you know a long-term relationship is is kind of you know one of the secrets is staying up to date on what your partner really thinks and feels and not assuming that you know because often what yeah. happens is you know the the, the, the partners and in the, in the, they assume they they, th- they know what the other thinks and feels right because we know each other so well, right We've been together for so long. and then one day, bam, you know they find out that's not true. yeah and, and you can avoid those big shocks if you have more arguments because the arguments are giving you a constant kind of source of little updates on on the emotions that are going on and, and the feelings that are going on just just a little beneath the surface.
0: God, that's so true. I, I definitely think in my relationship we have kind of like little and often kind of little little scraps that we sort out. And it's like, actually, then we never have a huge bust up because we're always in the loop. Yeah. And actually, there's a really lovely quote in your book. You say, when we disagree, we bring the whole of ourselves, our head, our heart, our gut. And I just thought, actually, yeah, you're not seeing that person for who they are if you're not seeing that side of them. But
1: that's it's interesting right? with, yeah.
0: the, with the book because... Not not to go too like spiritual and kind of Buddhist on you, but I, I, a part of this for me was like, you have to be able to disagree and not try and change the other person's mind and actually just be happy in your own thoughts. Like we don't have to always try yeah. and aggressively change the other person. Maybe we don't need to change them.
1: Yeah, well, and in fact, the, the, the problem is, is that when you try and aggressively change someone else's mind, you get the opposite right? It backfires. They, they, they just become more entrenched and more kind of extreme in, in, in their position. Yeah, you're right. It's a curious, you know, almost Buddhist-like kind of paradox um, where you, the more you push, basically, the more they, they you push back. In, in fact, you have to kind of stop thinking about it as pushing. It's more like you're you removing the barriers to them coming around to your point of view. That's the that's the better way to, to think about whatever's going to stop them kind of Changing their mind or being at least being more flexible in the way they think, um try and try and get remove those those barriers. People who practice difficult conversations firsthand. Um, as you know, I talk to uh, divorce mediators and hostage negotiators and and interrogators. And in an interrogation, expert interrogators, very kind of intuitively brilliant psychologists, right? They understand human the human heart better than most of us they're just very good at it um and they do not walk into the room uh, and, and and sort of bang their hands on on, on, on fists on, on the desk and say you got to tell me what you know it's not like in the, in the movies right actually some like bad interrogators do that but really good interrogators do not they walk into to the room they sit down opposite the suspect who might be a real hardened terrorist and certainly the interrogators i talk to deal with these people um, and they make a big deal out of the fact that you, the suspect does not have to talk if he doesn't want to, right? So, so a, a, an inexperienced interrogator will kind of mumble over the rights, you know, your rights at the beginning. So, you have the right not to talk. You have the right to a lawyer. Anyway, let's start the right now. Now, let's talk about what you're going to tell me. The expert interrogator walks into the room and says, "Listen, you." Absolutely, have the right not to talk. Um, I can't tell you what to, what to do. Uh, your lawyer can't tell you what to do. My colleague here can't. None of us can tell you what to do. Right? It's completely up to you. So, and as you as you know, you can leave the room if you want to. Right? That's that's your right. Um, so, um, but listen, I would just really like to hear um, how you got here. I, and <laughs> these hardened terrorists who actually do really want to tell their story, it, just just open up. And gush, you know, and all wow. the information comes out with it, and and that's a really interesting example of how the interrogator does not push, right? He doesn't come and come in and say, right, you need to tell me what you know, or you're in trouble. The interrogator just removes the 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 barrier to to him, right? Because because if if you come in and you say you've got to tell me, then that's just yeah. In a way, that's easy for the other person to say, all right, I don't want to tell you. You want to Ara. And you just set up this barrier. And the, interrogator, the canny interrogator just takes that away and says, well, oh, you don't have to talk. If you don't want to, you don't have to tell me. But I would like to know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and it's the same in addiction therapy. So you talk, and in fact, some of them have learned from addiction therapists that, that if you tell an addict, you have to stop drinking. Um, uh, you have to stop taking drugs. It's really screwing up your life. It's it's messing up your family, you know, all of which is true. But if you if you say that to them, they, they just come, you know, it become even more entrenched in in the habit because the, the innately perverse part of us, the part that hates to be pushed around basically and dominated, comes back and says, well, no, I really want to drink. I like drinking. It's my right. It's my freedom. It's the only thing I like. Why shouldn't I? So it's completely counterproductive. So the really good addiction therapists um, do not do that. They they just say, "Look, you tell me what's going on, and you you, you know you're here for a reason. What is it?" I I, I... and they listen, right? And
0: yeah, yeah. So interesting.
1: They're not completely neutral, but they're they're not saying you need to do this. You know, if the other person comes around to their point of view of the, of their own accord, then they'll be you know it's it's going to be much more authentic and more truthful, and in the, in the end, they're much more likely to change.
0: I swear I've watched a TED Talk somewhere about the power of the tone of voice as well. Like if someone's talking to you in a very calm voice, not like a pretend one, but just a general gentle voice, it's very hard to be angry against that because we're kind of mirroring each other as humans.
1: Yeah. I, okay. Listen, that's really interesting. I was, a couple of things about that. One is tone is very important and it's underestimated and not just um uh voice, physical voice, but but. Even just the tone with which you write a message, right? Very yeah. hard to judge, yeah. by the way, on on yeah. email or, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or particularly on Twitter. But tone is very important, and sometimes we kind of dismiss it and say, "Oh well, yeah, well, let's talk about the substance." You know, forget about the t-. no tone is important because tone is actually where you communicate a lot of emotion. You know, in very kind of compressed form, um, and and it also kind of indicates. It sends signals about how you feel about the other person, right about whether or not you're angry with the other person or you're fearful of the other person uh, and uh, hostile and, and so on so tone, tone is usually important i agree I agree with you that calm tone is often preferable, but not always. So if somebody is really upset, you know if my wife's really upset about something and I'm just super calm and unemotional, <laughs> that can be really infuriating. <laughs> Um, Make things and, and it can be like oh you're just not yeah. and so there's a kind of phrase that, that somebody uh, uh, used one of the police negotiators I talked to in, in the book said I try and start where they are um, and he didn't mean that if they're shouting at me I'm going to shout back it's not quite that but it is kind of accepting that there is some emotional if there is some emotional energy there I need to kind of recognize it Acknowledge it. Even just if it's just in words and say, I can see you're really angry. I, I, okay. I understand that. I didn't realize how angry you were. Just getting the emotion out on the, on the table is actually a really important step. And you're actually, yeah, you can do that calmly. All, all. I guess all I'm, my slight reservation about the calmness thing is, yeah, if you, if you kind of like Dr. Spock, like about everything, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, if you're kind of too logical, it can be a little bit
0: <laughs> totally. Um, all right. But I just, changing topics slightly because I really want to talk to you about this um, because I talk a lot about creativity on this podcast and being creative, getting better ideas, especially during this time. I feel like, I don't know, some people are getting great ideas. I'm not, I'm just stuck inside four walls. Um, But you talk a lot about how conflict can help us be more creative and, or at least the partnership between the two. And I know you include the Wright Brothers uh, example in the book and I was talking to a friend about that the other day and I don't think people know that that case study would you be able to just uh, share that and yeah. also how it can spur thoughts and ideas
1: it's crazy isn't it I, I so the Wright brothers I think a lot of people know vaguely like I did that the Wright brothers invented the aeroplane yes was, they knew the, that the, but, the,
0: but they did not know yeah. the story yeah
1: and but, but what's rem- yeah what's really remarkable about the Wright brothers is that they were not scientists, they were not even kind of uh, highly trained engineers. And so when when they were working on this problem at the kind of end of the 19th century, early 20th century, um, you had many of the best minds all, all around the world working on this problem of manned flight, right? And you had kind of corporations and institutions working on it. You had brilliant engineers, brilliant scientists. These guys, these were two guys who ran a bike shop they they hadn't even been to I don't think they've been to university. They certainly didn't have kind of higher ed- ed- education. Um, they really hadn't accomplished anything except that they ran this bike shop in in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio. Um, but they were obsessive amateur uh, engineers, and they became obsessed by this problem. And a big part of the reason that they beat everybody to its solution is that they were working together and, and they were arguing all the time <laughs> and they were constantly knocking out each other's weak arguments or, you know, proposition or hypotheses and, and bringing in stronger ones through this process of debate and argument, which actually they were kind of consciously you know taught by their father right so the father would sit them down at the dinner table um and would teach them in a kind of you know traditional um scholastic form of debate he would say right wilbert you take this side of the of of, of the argument um and uh orville you take the other and then after 30 minutes you're gonna swap sides and you're gonna so so that actually you know they were trained in 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 debating in that sense but it wasn't just that it's that they really enjoyed it so people used to walk past the bike shop and they would hear these like loud voices spilling out of, of from above the, uh, the shop and they would they would get worried they would say well these these boys are just like you know do they really hate each other but they loved it they and they were very very close right they, they, and it was because they loved each other and they were so close that they were able to get into these these kind of furious sometimes, but certainly very animated rows about how to build an aeroplane. Um, and so I just think, you know, it's a lovely example of how innovation and, and new thinking really comes from the collision of different kind of uh, ideas and different opinions, and different viewpoints and different bits of information just sort of coming together, smashing together and fusing into something new right and they, they, they kind of embodied that par, par excellence but it's also a great example of the way that you can really have a vigorous and productive and hugely productive disagreement if your relationship is good right and so you've got to get that bit first right now we're not all going to be like brothers like you know close brothers like like they are but in whatever context you know the the, the more you kind of settle that bit the, the better disagreements you have and, and and then it becomes a virtuous circle
0: yeah, I love, I love that story. And it's, it's really inspiring, just, you know, coming up with solutions and seeing people do that. I think what, what's interesting about this conversation for me is I feel like privately, I'm really good at disagreeing and with my closest friends and with my family, like we go there. What's so weird at the moment is this like cancel culture thing where people are so genuinely afraid, like there might be people listening who are like, God, I really do want to disagree or or have these conversations, but doing it in public spaces is te- is kind of terrifying because you can have like pylons and people getting the wrong end of the stick. Do you have any advice on how to do this in a way that isn't so terrifying?
1: Well, uh, no, <laughs> I mean, I mean I, that's a, I, I, I'm I not sure I have advice, but I, I would say I agree with you. I, I, I think it has had a kind of a slightly chilling effect on on. On, on disagreement, I mean, the, the only advice is, you know, you, we don't have to have these arguments or these discussions and debates in in public. That's that's a relatively new thing where where you go on Twitter and you say, well, I'm going to solve the problem of yeah, gender differences um, in public, yeah. um, and 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 certainly, of course, you know, there are now social media where you can have more private conversations. Um, and you can have them in voice or in person, you know, as well as through text, because text is really kind of the lowest context form of communication uh, of all. Um, but you know, it's interesting, because I think that the, the, the cancel culture, for want of a better phrase, but you know, it's really another example of how to avoid disagreement. Yeah. It's just another way of saying, wow, oh, I find this stuff really uncomfortable and difficult. So therefore, here's another way I can avoid it. I'll just decide the other person's evil. Um, or, or you know should not be part of, 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 of the realm of acceptable ideas or, or debate that's great. Well, that means I can only talk to people who already agree with me about stuff. So, you know, it's the same instinct as it is to, you know, it's a people pleasing instinct inverted. It's the same thing. It's just another way of saying, right, well, this is too uncomfortable for me, so I'm, uh, I'm going to avoid it. Um, yeah. So there are all these forces pressing on you to say, don't have open disagreements. And, and I just think it's destructive ultimately to our relationships and, and to our creativity to not have them.
0: It's funny how it's like biologically wired, isn't it? You know, if you're about to disagree with some people in a room it's almost like we go back to like caveman days and we're like oh they're gonna like eat me or kill me <laughs> and you've got to kind of get over that
1: it's literally the same part of the brain you associate the conflicting opinion with the person um and we and and, and you assume that the person is out to attack you right so so when somebody says I disagree with with what you're saying about this this project at work or or your, or your political view. Your, your brain reads that as right, okay. Well, this person is coming at me with a knife, <laughs> you know, or, or something like that, and I need to defend them. And you go into defense mode immediately, and that means that you're not really thinking. That takes a viewpoint of your IQ. Immediately, you become a little bit stupider once you're in defense mode, right? Because you can't be <laughs> cognitively flexible; you can't think things through, um, and and it just becomes this kind of game of of back and forth. So, so a couple of things about that. What one is, you know, try not to get into defense mode. It's very hard. A lot of this is easier said than done, but try and be open to to other other points of view. The other thing is, you can understand that that's what the other person is likely to do as well and try and lower their defenses so try and not make them feel like they're being attacked right which goes back to this what we were talking about in terms of you know with the interrogators and the therapists and 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 so on well those guys are very skilled at at putting the other making the other person feel more secure in the conversation so when somebody's behaving really irrationally or, or they're being hostile and you can sense that, try and think to yourself, how can I actually, that's because this person is feeling insecure in some way and, and they feel like their identity or their status is a threat. Right? They feel like they might be humiliated in, in this conversation. So how can I avoid that? Uh, how can I help them feel that's not going to happen? Right? Maybe I can just speak them up a bit, you know, maybe yeah. I'll pay them a compliment. Maybe, maybe I can show them, you know, I really do respect you. And I, I, I think you're great. Just disagreeing about this thing. That's all. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so you can manage it. You can kind of manage it so it, it works better.
0: I really love that. That's actually a really lovely note to end on that after all of this, it's literally about making people feel safer and making us feel safer with each other. And that yeah. could lead to literally a better world for everyone. Um, but to anyone listening who could listen to Ian talk for hours more, cause I could go and buy the book. It's so great. There's so much more in there to um, gobble up and yeah, thank you for your work, because I also saw that, hadn't you written a book before about curiosity? And I feel like these two books kind of, it feels like conflict is about curiosity at the heart of it.
1: Yeah, I didn't realise that until I wrote the book, but you're right. There's definitely a strong underlying continuing theme there.
0: Yeah. Uh, what are you feeling curious about at the moment?
1: Oh, gosh. Um i'm i'm curious to see what's going to happen over the summer how much carnage there's going to be on the streets of london whether or not we will be able to like reopen um without everybody uh, just sort of drinking and eating so much that 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 you know becomes this kind of hogarthian kind of riot. Um, so I'm just curious about seeing everybody again as well. I, I mean, I, I agree with you, like, I, I just don't feel particularly creative at, at the moment and I've forgotten, or I hadn't realised until this happened how much I rely on just passing interactions, or you know, or or meeting people I don't know very well, talking to people like you, you know, just seeing lots of people and having kind of brief, quite light conversations with them is enormously important to my brain, right? It just switches my brain on. And when it's not happening, yeah, I just feel a bit kind of, yeah i and a bit flat so i yeah I'm just looking forward to having my curiosity stimulated a lot more I guess is what I'm saying
0: yes me too because sometimes even in the pub someone will say something and I'll literally be like oh my god that that could be a scene in a book it's like that's yeah. how my brain works but yeah Absolutely. thank you again and um yeah great to talk to you thank you really enjoyed it Emma thank you